0: Hi everybody, Liam here. Before we get started, just a quick update. This is my first new episode in a long time because I've spent the past few months working on a mini series. This is part one, and there'll be several more over the next few weeks, so I hope it's been worth the wait. Also, I've been putting together a waterfront history tour. It'll be a two or three hour boat ride out on the bay and into the Oakland estuary, and tickets are on sale now, So check out eastbayyesterday.com if you want to join me for that. And oh yeah, if you can afford it, please drop a few bucks into my Patreon account. I'm so grateful to the folks out there who are already supporting this podcast. And yeah, you guys are awesome. Okay, here's the show. Deep in Canyon, part one. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. <laughs> Let's begin. Let's
1: begin.
2: That feels like being in a cowboy movie. The terrain is different.
3: Pretty much you're looking down a Redwood Canyon and actually from my house, even though you can see for miles, you can only see one other house to the south. So it gives the impression of being far, far out in the woods when it's actually only about three miles from Oakland.
4: Self-reliance is is a lot of what has been the, the basis for Canyon because it was It was people being self-reliant in their own households, in their own lives, I mean just like was my experience when I first came and I learned how to bake bread and how to live without electricity and how to provide for my own heat, how to live without money essentially, Um, (laughs) the joys of dumpster diving. He
2: had a motorcycle and he rode his motorcycle
4: through our house
2: so that we would have light so that I could find the diapers.
1: <laughs> it's a redwood grove in the woods, no street lights, no sidewalks. You have to have your own septic tank, you have to have your own spring or well. You have to take care of yourself and you have to take care of your neighbors. and. Uh, I like that.
2: It's a little bit like living on an island or a small village. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing, and you're held accountable. You can't do something wrong without people knowing about it, and then you have to deal with them knowing about it. I think it keeps people being pretty good neighbors.
1: The lawyers told him they were going to bust him, and he told him, You come up on my trail, I'll blow you off the fucking road, off the trail, you son of a bitches.
3: We didn't get here till 1970 and they were already like every chicken coop and tree house was occupied by a colorful group of people. But if anybody drove out here in a bus and parked it and started living there, other people were just like, hi, some of us. Uh, I'm sure there were other people that were just like, oh my god, where are they going to the bathroom?
1: So we came back home to find that the town had just gone up and smoking. The roads were closed, there were fire engines all over the place and they were towing out these police cars that had burned and they wouldn't let us in.
2: I was in bed, it was this huge explosion and I thought it was an atomic bomb. I really did
4: it wasn't just the building department the building inspectors but they brought the contra costa county sheriffs looking for marijuana they brought the dog catchers and you know just the whole crew came together and were looking for anything that they could find that people were doing wrong. And then the response was that people put nails in the road to blow out the tires. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that would never happen in Moraga.
1: (laughs) And when Patty Hearst was kidnapped, the FBI was at his house 15 minutes after it happened because they know Canyon is a revolutionary hotbed. At the time when this all started, The hippie movement, they called it. I was uh, on the other side of the fence, I guess. But it didn't take long, and uh, I learned to like several of the people who were so-called hippies. They get to the top of the road, this narrow, little teeny road. Barry had built a barricade across the road. Logs and, you know, skulls and various signs, and nobody in the sheriff's department wanted to come to Canyon after that.
4: Prospective buyers would come and look at it, but here were these five houses where squatters were living, and they had no intention of leaving, and they also didn't want to pay rent. And so it scared most people away. You
3: know, it's a community of choice, where it's not just a community that organically grew up around people, um, an industry, people came to live here because they wanted a certain kind of lifestyle, and that's still the case.
1: So we had people up on the roof. We had machine guns wrapped up in tar paper on the roof while it looked like it was a roll of tar paper being used on the roof. We worked on the school the whole time. You know, there was a guy sitting up in the tree about 50 foot up above the parking place with a 357 pistol right above anybody that parked. And so that's the kind of community it is—defend the school.
4: I was amazed because I didn't know that a place like this existed. The last
2: part of it is the most beautiful part. There's a house that looks like a log cabin, and then after that, there's a gate, and we can ride the horses around the gate, and it's just all pure, like riding in a fairy tale.
1: And I even had a uh, person who would drop me off a bag of. About 200 hits of LSD every time that they would have them tabbed up and I was to pass them out to all my friends in Canyon to see if they were buffed up evenly, if they are the same street. It was always good LSD, it was through the Jefferson airplane.
2: I completely fell in love with Canyon. I just, I could run around barefoot, it was hot, which I loved. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I kind of lost my mind a little bit.
1: If the bureaucratic squeeze has done anything, say the people who live in this beautiful canyon, it has united the community with the will to fight. They came here to escape the crunch of urban life and are determined to defend what they feel is a sanctuary against it becoming just another extension of suburbia. Ben Williams reporting for Eyewitness News from Canyon.
0: Okay, so I'm driving up into the hills from the flatlands of Oakland right now. Uh, From my house down there in the flats, I can see two different highways. There are buses uh, passing back and forth below my window all day. And of course, tons of cars. Someone actually uh, tagged a bush down the block recently. like They spray painted their name on the leaves of the plant. Uh, there are people living in tents that have been there for a couple of years. And uh, all this is just to kind of set the tone for some pretty typical scenery that you see down in the flatlands of Oakland. Uh, but now, driving up in the hills, it looks totally different. Um, passing by all these big houses with wooden decks looking out onto the bay, uh, there are lots of fancy cars parked in the driveways. Uh, The houses are are up here are built right on top of each other because no one has much of a yard. And it's so steep. The road snakes back and forth because of all the switchbacks. But okay, now now we're coming up to the ridge. So I'm crossing Skyline Boulevard and there it is. There's a sign at one corner of this quiet foresty residential intersection that says Contra Costa County Line. And there's another sign with one of those squiggly arrows that means the road's about to start getting really twisty. And under the arrow, it says, next four miles. Because this really steep, really narrow, really curvy road that I'm pulling onto right now doesn't feel like just going into a different county or traveling four miles. It's more like entering a portal to a different World. I'm not even hitting the gas right now, but I'm speeding up because of gravity. It feels like what's down there at the bottom of the canyon behind Oakland is pulling me in. It's so different back here. Immediately, there are no houses, no streetlights, no noise. I'm just trying to keep my eye on the road because I don't want to drive off a cliff, but everywhere around is so green and alive. There are oaks and madrones, Bay trees, uh, moss and lichen all over the branches and trunks. And outcroppings of really jagged, exposed-looking rocks. It's just wild. Like all of a sudden, just by crossing the street, I'm a hundred miles away from the city. I remember the first time I drove down here. I was actually just a little nervous. Like when you're getting on a roller coaster, speeding downhill, you don't know what's ahead, but Right now, I'm not nervous. I'm excited because I'm going to meet up with Esperanza Pratt-Searles, who has lived in this tiny little community for most of her life, and she made this really gorgeous photo book to raise money for the Canyon School, uh, where she was a teacher for a long time, where we're going to meet her right now, and she wrote this great little description of the town in the introduction. So here we go.
3: At the bottom, bands of golden light stream down, creating a cathedral of dappled green. The creek winds along one side and dirt roads branch off the other, invitingly forbidden. In the heart of town, a little school lies like a found treasure, erupting with the joyous shouts of children and splashes of color. If you ignore the no trespassing signs and follow one of those roads, you'll still be none the wiser. Old cabins, ramshackle junkers, and fantastic hand-built palaces of wood speak of twists of mind that match the twists of pavement. Shady hollows are juxtaposed with rickety chicken pens, rusted hulks with fairy circles. Paradise with a dash of chaos and secrets on the side.
0: Canyon wasn't always this sun-dappled redwood paradise. Back in the 1840s, it was probably the roughest area in the whole East Bay. Again, here's Esperanza.
3: Downtown Canyon was here and it was a kind of a, there wasn't any formal law enforcement for much of the time. I think it was kind of typical Old West rules. If you were caught stealing anything of any significance.
0: Like an ox or something?
3: Yeah, probably any kind of rustling of horses or that kind of thing. There definitely were some people that were hanged there and uh, the tree was right on the edge of Pinehurst. I'll drive you down there. So the hangman tree was right up here and it was just an oak tree that, you know, this would have been like a dusty sort of trail type road and it just hung over the road. And um, it was, it had had that name, you know, so I would have seen it in the late 60s and and 70s, and I think it was cut down in the 80s. But it had to be like, you know, 150 years before that where they had actually hung people on it, but it retained its name.
0: Back when California first became a state, there were more people in Canyon than in Oakland. And the reason is simple if you wanted to make fast money, Canyon was the place to do it. Here's Vicki Saputo, who's got deep family roots here. Canyon was a huge redwood forest.
2: Um, the trees were like over a thousand years old. And when the ships used to come into San Francisco, they could see these giant redwoods. So then... Of course, big business gets into play, you know, and people started thinking, well, that's a gold mine. So everybody was going to Canyon, and Canyon was like this booming town, and it had a, it had saloons and a dance hall and a, an inn, and they were just chopping down all these trees. Well, then when they finally chopped down all the trees, a lot of the people left, and it wasn't so popular anymore.
0: Those redwood trees had stood since... Julius Caesar ruled ancient Rome. Some of them were over 300 feet, taller than the Tribune Tower. They were all gone by the end of the 1850s. After teams of oxen had dragged the last of the lumber over the hills and the sawmill shut down, the ranchers moved in. Some of the first ranchers were Vicky's great-grandparents.
2: My dad was born and raised in Canyon, and. Uh, so was were his parents, and my great-grandparents were Catherine and Patrick.
0: That would be Catherine and Patrick McCosker. McCosker is Vicki's maiden name.
2: Patrick and Catherine came from Ireland to Philadelphia, and they met on a boat, and they ended up landing in Canyon and homesteading out there.
0: A few weeks ago, I hiked around the green hilly site that Vicki's great-grandparents settled at the north end of Canyon. I saw a bunch of cows grazing there, and I wondered if any of them were related to the cows that used to graze this property back in the McCosker Ranch era. Here's Vicky reading about her grandfather from a diary of family history. It was written by her Aunt Grace. In those early days, my father worked on a farm in Moraga. He
2: walked two miles over the hills and worked from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. for $1 a day. He raised a few chickens and cows for his own use, and mother worked hard cooking on a wood stove, washing clothes on a washboard, etc.
0: The reason why Vicky's grandpa worked on a farm over the hills is because his land, McCoskey Ranch, wasn't suitable as a commercial farm. Canyon is steep, and the soil isn't ideal. Even though there are creeks everywhere, water can run out during the dry summer months. People in Canyon grew food then, and they still do today, but it couldn't support big orchards like moraga and orinda. Around the dawn of the 20th century, modern conveniences like electricity and telephones were spreading throughout the Bay Area but people like the McCaskers were still living a frontier lifestyle. Here's another passage from the family diary. This one is about the birth of Vicky's aunts.
2: Mother was 22 when she became pregnant. On June 24th, 1898, she walked a mile to her mother's house to give birth to her first daughter, Evelyn. In another year and a half, she was ready to give birth to a second baby. December 14th was a terribly rainy night, but again she desired to go to her mother's house. They arrived at the door where a sack of grain was placed to wipe their feet. Grandmother had to be wakened, but before she could get to the door, the baby was born right there on the grain sack. Mary Margaret had arrived.
0: (laughs) During the hippie years in the 1960s, a lot of Canyon women were part of the natural childbirth movement but it doesn't get much more natural than uh, just popping out that baby onto a dirty burlap sack. And it's not like they could have just run a hot bath to clean things up. That well water was precious.
2: My dad, when he was living in Canyon, uh, they didn't have much water, so they all had to take a bath in the same water. And Imagine, two adults and six kids. And then, when they were done with their bath, my grandmother would take the bath water and water the plants with
0: it. But the McCaskers weren't totally cut off from the outside world.
2: Well, before the canyon school, my aunts used to go to school in Oakland, and they would ride horseback up over the hill over Skyline. There's a road that's right next to Pinehurst Road, and it's just a rustic darling, beautiful road. I used to ride horseback there, and and the trees all kind of go like a tunnel. But anyway, my aunts would ride that trail, and they'd end up in Oakland.
0: As the redwood trees started growing back, Canyon's population started recovering. Canyon built its first school in 1918, not far from where a brothel and cockfighting saloons had stood a few decades earlier.
2: So my uncle, Al McCosker was in the first graduating class, and my dad was in the second graduating class, and my dad used to joke and say, I was president, vice president, secretary, treasurer of my class, because he was the only one in his class.
0: <laughs> there was still no high school, but by the time Vicky's dad graduated from eighth grade, he didn't need to worry about riding a horse to class, a train connecting Canyon to Oakland, opened in 1913. We call them the tracks, but there's no tracks there anymore.
2: But it was from the Sacramento Northern Railroad, which my dad used to take to go to school when he was going to Oakland Tech. And when he went to uh, UC Berkeley, he used to take the, the
0: Sacramento Northern train. John McCosker grew up without indoor plumbing, but there were some advantages to being raised in this rugged, isolated village.
2: My dad used to run the mile when he was at at Cal and one of the reasons that he was such a good runner was he ran all over Canyon and they used to call him Boots because he was running all over Canyon in his boots.
0: In the eighteen hundreds the rapid growth of the Bay Area depended on all that redwood lumber hauled out of canyon. In the nineteen hundreds, John McCosker ended up owning a construction company. And he carried on Canyon's tradition of building up this region.
2: My dad worked on the Golden Gate Bridge and also on the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge. And he even worked on the San Rafael and the Benicia. And then um, he worked on the Caldecott Tunnel and the Rainbow Tunnel that's on the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge. And the Webster Tube to Alameda. He also helped to build the Berkeley Pier and the Oakland Coliseum. Um, He also... so. Helped to build the MacArthur Maze. Uh...
3: My grandmother grew up in San Leandro, and she uh, said that she used to come out here. In in uh, she was born in 1911, so this was probably right around 1920, there, there was a big fairground out here. And of course, by then, the um, forest wasn't grown up like it is now, but it was still a shady, pretty place with some second growth redwoods. And so I'll actually show you where that spot is up here.
0: Again, that's longtime Canyon resident and teacher, Esperanza Pratt Searles.
3: So this is where, I mean, there was a big bridge that went across this area, and there was a train station here, and this is where the picnic grounds were built. We'll just go a tiny way so you can get the feel. But you can see how pretty it is down here.
0: As factories sprung up all over the Bay Area and the population exploded, cities got louder and dirtier. At the same time that nature was being wiped out down in the flatlands, it was starting to make a comeback up in the hills. Once the train line opened, Canyon became a popular spot for weekend outings. Here's longtime resident Karen Pickett.
4: There were several saloons, and there was a dance hall, and... People, you know, people in those days obviously didn't travel very far for their recreation. So this was so accessible to Oakland and Berkeley and even San Francisco. And they actually had special excursion trains that would come out on the weekend. They ran extra trains because people would come out. I mean, there was a merry-go-round. It was a whole park kind of scene and people would come out, but they were mostly
0: visitors. The goal of real estate developers was to turn some of those weekend visitors into something more. See, railroads and real estate speculation have always been deeply connected. And Canyon is a perfect example of this. Those beautiful picnic grounds that the railroads operated were basically an advertisement for property. Again, Karen Pickett.
4: And then because people enjoyed the area so much... You know, the the redwoods were coming back a little bit. We had small baby redwoods then. People started, well, there were land speculators that came in and had this idea to develop a summer resort community. And some of them were meant to be permanent residents, but mostly it was for people who were going to live and work in other parts of the East Bay, the more urban parts, you know, I remember reading the story that, that there were a lot of families where the mom and kids would stay out here during the summer in the good weather times, and the dad would come out on the weekend.
0: Some of the dads liked Canyon so much that they ended up living out there full time. As we walked by a house that used to be one of Canyon's train stations, Esperanza told me that there are still a few reminders left from that era.
3: The Canyon train station was in that house right there. And there's a couple good stories. One of them is I forgot to show you when we were in the 678 classroom, but there's a set of um, cupboards that are like kind of like cubby type cupboards. And that was in the foyer of what became this house because it was the people would walk down in their rubber boots. and and put them in the cupboard and then get their town shoes out of the little slot and then take the train to um, Jack London Square where they could take the ferry over to San Francisco if they worked in the city or they would just, so people would commute in and out.
0: For a while, Canyon was on its way to becoming another bedroom community, like the kind of suburban enclave that exists all over the Bay Area these days. Hiking around Canyon now, you can see evidence of this timeline. Residential ruins, ghosts of a future that never happened.
4: There were more houses then than there are now. And you can see some of the remnants, the vestiges, where there'll be some stone steps going nowhere, just going up into the brush. Or uh, you know, part a piece of a concrete pad, just you know, in the hills, in the woods around here. And when you look at the the maps, um, and I have I have some of the maps in, in that paper too, of what was planned, it's absolutely horrifying. It wasn't, you know, so much individuals coming out or families coming out and staking their claim this is a place I would love to live and, and here is where we can build a house. It was the it was the real estate people, it was the land speculators. And so they were just figuring, you know, how can I make the absolute most money? And they had the entire canyon area carved up, even in this steep terrain. They had roads all over the place in these little tiny lots, and each lot was planned to have a house on it. And fortunately, it never came to fruition. Um, it, it came to fruition in a, in a very small way, that you know, they built some houses. But it just, I guess the interest and the money just wasn't there. I I'm sure there were a lot of factors.
0: One of the big factors was Canyon's isolation and rugged terrain. It would have cost developers a lot to pay for the infrastructure to connect Canyon to EB Mud sewers and pipes. And the water company, uh, EB Mud stands for East Bay Municipal Utility District, Uh, they had other plans for what to do with this area, but I'll get into that in the next episode. Anyway, there were much easier places to turn a profit, so the real estate people focused on those areas instead. Mm -hmm. During the 1950s, while the rest of the Bay Area sprouted shopping centers and tracked homes, Canyon stayed mostly the same, like a little time capsule. A book about Canyon called it, quote, the last rustic community in metropolitan America.
2: I was born in 1943, so I remember Canyon from my entire life. It used to be like
0: this quaint, rural village. Again, that's Vicki Saputo. Vicki grew up in Albany and Arenda, but she spent a lot of time on her family's property in Canyon. Before Arenda's farms were turned into subdivisions, there were horse trails connecting the two towns.
2: When I was a child, we used to ride the horses to Arinda from Canyon. So we'd go over all those hills, and there used to be this old man. His name was Pop Byers, and we'd stop by his house, and he'd give us a lemonade. And then we'd come out at the McDonald Nursery, you know where I'm talking, on Moraga Way. And then we'd go to my parents' house, and my dad had, had a barn with some stables. And then the other thing, sometimes we would ride down Moraga Way, and we'd get to Moraga, and... Those were all pear orchards, and now they are all these homes and the Moraga Country Club, and it's just totally different. It also used to be a drag
0: strip when we were in high school. The boys had raced their cars up there. Now the median home price in Arinda is more than $1.6 million. And in Moraga, which borders Canyon to the east, it's more than $1.3 Kind of amazing how much can change in a single lifetime. Oh, and while the rest of the East Bay was paving over nature, Canyon was moving in the opposite direction.
2: My dad planted 150 redwood trees on his property because he wanted to contribute to the redwood trees that had all been destroyed and everything. And one time we had a stone soup, well, we had more than one stone soup party, but we had a stone soup party out there this one particular time, and people were camping out all over the hills on the property and everything, and we made a big deal about planting redwood trees, and so we were planting all these seedlings, and we had the worms to put in the soil, and we did everything, and then we had a bagpiper, and he would come and he would play his bagpipes. Every time we would plant another tree, he'd play the bagpipes, but it was really fun and very festive.
0: I'm going to get way more into all the crazy conflicts of the hippie era in the next episode of this mini series. But before wrapping up this one, I want to share a few of Vicky's impressions, because she's one of the few people who remembers Canyon before the 1960s and saw all the changes up close.
2: I was at UC Berkeley in 6162, and I can remember Studying in the poly ballroom and being so distracted I couldn't concentrate by looking at these people that had long hair and were growing beards, and it was so different because when I was in the sorority, we had rules, you know. We had to wear certain color white bobby socks, and we wore those loafers with a penny in them, and a lot of the guys had crew cuts, and nobody had really long hair you know, like mm-hmm. the hippies do. And so um, it was new.
0: By the mid-60s, a bunch of those long hairs had moved from Berkeley to Canyon, and their behavior came as quite a shock to some of the old-timers. Here's an example. Vicky's dad used to take young men from a local school for the blind out on field trips to his ranch. I'll let her take it from here.
2: I remember one time when my dad had the blind boys out, and he was, like, driving us around the hills and everything. You know, it was fun to bounce around in the truck. And, of course, they couldn't see, but I guess some of them could see a little bit because some of those hippies were doing things (laughs) that weren't for for the public. (laughs) They were making love up in the hills and stuff, you know, and we drove up to the back 40, and we see this couple was having a good time. (laughs) And one of the kids made a comment, I guess that kid could see a little bit. <laughs> My dad had to turn the truck around so we could hightail it out of there.
0: In 1964, Vicky was in nursing school, and her then-husband was in law school. They decided to save money on rent by moving into a trailer on her family's property. By then, Canyon's reputation had gone from quaint village to something very different.
2: Sometimes when I'd go to the grocery store in Moraga, in those days we didn't have uh, our credit cards to use. You know, you'd write a check and so I'd have to go to the little customer service counter and they'd check my ID and that kind of thing. And they'd say, they'd always do this. They'd say, Canyon, but you don't look like a hippie.
0: (laughs) A century earlier people had descended into Canyon to clear-cut it and yank out every living thing that could be sold for a profit. But in the 60s, people moved there to reconnect with nature and distance themselves from capitalism. I was trying to think of what these two very different eras had in common, and this is what I came up with. A lot of the loggers who chopped down those ancient redwoods had no right to be here. They didn't own the land they were on. And a lot of the hippies who moved here didn't have rights to this land either. And even the ones who did own the property where they lived or paid rent, they ignored county building codes and all other kinds of regulations. So I guess the common thread is this lawless kind of attitude.
2: Canyon doesn't like to have rules or (laughs) boundaries or anything. People in Canyon pretty much do what they want.
0: (laughs) Sometimes that outlook can result in beautiful forms of creative expression. Other times it can end up in disaster. Over the next few episodes, I'm going to take a deep look at Canyon during the sixties and seventies, and also explore how it's changed since then. And there have been big changes, but some things haven't changed. It's still one of the most beautiful places on earth. And Vicki, she's still in the saddle, every chance she gets.
2: I'm still going out to Canyon. I'm 75 and I still ride my horses. And I, I love it. It's like a live meditation. And I see my dad Oh, it makes me teary-eyed, but it, I see my dad when I'm riding out there. I have memories I think of all the fun times that I had out there. And I just it's in my blood. And I would I would feel really bad if I couldn't ride anymore <laughs> cuz that's my way to to be in it. It's not like driving past it. it. It's just part of it. And also so much of my childhood out there was on a horse. Yeah, just to be in nature, it's just a wonderful feeling, you know. And for me, I like being on a horse to do it. (laughs) Totally, yeah. And it's also fun sometimes in the summer to pick berries, you know. There's lots of wild berries in Canyon, but now there's so many more people in Canyon, it's harder to find the berries.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. If you want to see photos of Canyon and also get details on that waterfront history boat tour that I'm doing this spring, check out eastbayyesterday.com. Besides all the people who talked to me for this episode, I also want to thank Jared Childress, Amelia Sue Marshall, John Vanderzee. Roberta Llewellyn, and the Bay Area Television Archive at San Francisco State University. To all the people who are supporting East Bay yesterday through Patreon, you are keeping the show alive. I'm so, so grateful to the 39 patrons whose donations support my ability to make this show. Also, big thanks to Sean and Andrea from Digital Root Studio. If you have old media like VCR or audio tapes or printed out photos that you want to digitize, they are the place in Oakland to go. That's Digital Root Studio. Uh, They're on Piedmont Ave. And don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And speaking of social media, if you enjoyed this episode, please do me a huge favor and share it. I would really, really appreciate it. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on pretty much all the major podcast apps. Music for this episode came from Lobo Loco. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back very soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.